Is what you just heard really the word of the Lord? I don't mean to shock you, but probably not. The phrase inspired scripture refers to the original manuscript written by the biblical author. Of course, we don't have any Bible originals. We have copies of copies of copies of copies. Insofar as those copies reproduce the original text, they are the inspired word of God. Similarly, to the degree your English translations convey the meaning of the original, they too may be regarded as inspired. In this case, however, the vast majority of early manuscripts of John do not have this entire story. The conclusion that someone added it later is an NCAA Final Four language, a virtual slam dunk. Fortunately, this kind of textual situation only happens twice in the whole New Testament, here and the end of Mark's Gospel. So despite the fact that this is a well-known and loved story, it almost certainly was not part of John's original Gospel, therefore it should not be technically regarded as inspired Scripture. But that does not mean the event did not happen, And in fact, the portrayal of Jesus here matches up very well with the way John presents him elsewhere. More on that later. A second rather obvious question is this. Where's the guy? After all, it takes two to tango. Maybe he got away, or perhaps the teachers of the law are applying a chauvinistic double standard. You know, guys will be guys sowing their wild oats, But a respectable woman should never act in this way. Yet God is no chauvinist. The Old Testament clearly says both parties of the adultery should be punished. With those preliminary behind us, what's the point of the story? Or to ask a more famous question, what does this mean? Here's a multiple choice quiz for you. Does it mean, A, that there are levels of sin and sinners in God's eyes? Well, that's the game that these teachers of the law are playing. They think, yeah, we might be a bit self-righteous, but that's really no big deal. Adultery, on the other hand, is one of those celebrity sins that must be punished seriously, in this case, stoning to death. Now, to be sure, in this world, there are levels of wickedness. Here, a murderer is punished more harshly than those who gossip about him. But before God, you're either a lawkeeper or a lawbreaker. James says whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Sin is like a pin, and it only takes one to pop our balloon. So the requirement for taking God's judgment into our hands is not a matter of degree. Instead, Jesus says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. His reply hits home on these tricksters. They all drop their rocks and leave. The proverbial point Don't throw stones if you live in a glass house. And the same would apply to our metaphorical rocks. Yes, sticks and stones may break our bones, but the injuries caused by harsh, critical, and insulting words often hurt a lot longer. 
The tantalizing temptation is to throw these kinds of stones. Maybe they make us feel superior, pharisaically propping ourselves up by knocking other people down. But we should also drop rocky words, for we are all equally guilty before God. A is false. What about B? It's not what we do, but why we do it that's important. In spite of how she's often portrayed, this woman is not Mary Magdalene, and the text nowhere says she's a prostitute. Perhaps she's simply having an affair, thinking, I might be breaking some rules, but it's for the higher good of a loving relationship. Nothing wrong with that, is there? Yeah, there is. No matter what, thou shall not commit adultery. Yet answer B poses a false alternative. Why is also important. The question the teachers of the law asked Jesus could be done honestly. But here we're told it's a duplicitous attempt to catch Jesus in something they can charge against him. So both what and why we do something is important. B is also false. How about C? All sinners can be forgiven and accepted by Jesus. Yes, this is most certainly true. And here the story rings true with the rest of John's gospel. Right after his best one-liner of all time, John 3:16, Jesus immediately adds, "For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him." And that includes this woman. So Jesus tells her, and he tells each one of you, neither do I condemn you. Amen to that. But then what? C is true. Then what about D? Since Jesus forgives each and every sin, it must be all right to sin. It sounds like a good deal. Jesus likes to forgive. I like to sin. We're all set. But it's also false. The reading ended by Jesus telling the woman, go and sin no more. And why is that? Is Jesus some killjoy trying to take all the fun out of life? No. In reality, the command, do not commit adultery, tries to protect us from behavior that ruins our lives and destroys way too many families. So with all of God's law, Jesus loves us just as we are. But he loves us too much to leave us just as we are. So he gives us his good law to guard us from evil, to guide us toward healthy and fulfilled relationships with God and with one another. Jesus says all the laws are simply showing us how to love God and love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So what does this mean? Jesus is in fact the only one without sin, so he could rightly condemn each and every one of us. But he came to forgive us instead. He gave his life for us. And he then calls us to go and sin no more so that we might more fully experience the abundant life that he gives to us. In his name, 
Amen.